Hello, and welcome to Stacia Adjacent, a podcast at the intersection of, of analog and digital productivity. I'm Justin Twyford, and joined as always by Stu Lennon, my friend and co-host. Hey, Stu, how's Cyprus today? Hey there, Justin. It's very nice. Thank you. It's been a lovely day here. How's uh, sunny Canada? Oh, it's still dark here. We're in the winter months. It's kind of depressing, actually. I'm looking out. I can see the silhouette of my local mountain. It's all covered in snow. Burr, burr. The trees that I see, they're all bare. It's, uh, hey, it's very wintry, actually. It's probably about eight inches of snow on the ground. Ooh. I'm going to keep looking at my screen. I think it's uh, less depressing. <laughs> Put some Hawaiian music on in the background. Oh, yeah. Have you started on the Christmas music yet, Stu? Uh, no, thus far, I've managed to swerve it. Although I, I think the moment is coming. Um, I suspect I'll be ambushed by it at some point. Mm -hmm. uh, probably when I go shopping. Oh, uh, definitely while you go shopping. We had, um, our, our little town is very quaint and they had a light up ceremony on Saturday, which was like something out of a Hallmark movie. You know, you expect to see the people hugging on the side of the road as they've just made up from everything, but the whole downtown core lit up, all the houses get involved in this. They're all decorated. I can only imagine what the energy usage has done for the profile for December. But uh, we took uh, a ride round. We put Coco in the back of that car and went off and drove around for two hours listening to Christmas music and looking at fairy lights. It was very Christmassy. Yeah, it sounds lovely. Actually was. You might not even get a bar humbug out of me for that one this week. Oh, give it time and we'll both be bar humbugging, I'm sure. Hey, speaking of this week, we had the Plan Your Year workshops by Sean Blanc. How did that go for you? Um, how did it go for me? Well, it, it was unsurprisingly uh, very similar to the one I did last year, um, which was the exact same workshop. The format hasn't really changed much. I mean, it's evolved a little. And it's one of those things that, um, I, there's a load of these things that I do that I, when I complete them, I think, well, I could have just done that myself. And then there's the other part of me who turns around and goes, yes, but you don't. So there, there must be something to it. And I think, you know, part of the value of these things is making a commitment to yourself that you're going to spend some time doing this thing. Um, and then that gets the, the juices flowing. I think Sean's enthusiasm sort of helps and the fact that you're you know amongst like-minded folk who are doing the same thing that probably has a sort of affirming characteristic to it as well what about you this was your first time i think wasn't it it was a little different than the process that i had uh, spoken about last week i i enjoyed it it's i think the essence is to distill everything down into one focused theme. I sort of looked at what he was coming up with very much along the lines of Mike Hurley's uh, Cortex Brands theme journal. So I, I might actually, if I go further down that, uh, break that out and see if that's something that I can put to use because I bought it, looked at it and went, I, I don't get it. Um, it hasn't spoken to me. Uh, maybe it will. I'm, I'm not entirely sure yet. I'm kind of still looking at it. You know, there was a lot of reflecting on the positive from last year, your accomplishments and everything like that. 
And it certainly was a bit of a eye opener to sit down and reflect and realize that my year had been, well, it had gone 90 degrees sideways basically for much of it. And that was interesting. And it kind of gave me a little bit of pause to accept that and say, okay, you know what, this, this year fell off the rails in terms of productivity and in terms of where some of my goals wanted to be, uh, but that led to new challenges and, and hopefully new things for 2022 that will be a lot more positive. You know, this is a process that uh, certainly the family is going through and I'm, I'm kind of came out of it feeling hopeful for 2022. Um, I don't think I did a lot in terms of concrete goals for myself, but I think in terms of just getting my head space to the point where I could sit down and noodle on that for the next few weeks before January starts was a very positive thing. Uh, Sean is an energetic and very engaging presenter. So I quite enjoyed it. Um, I, as you said, I, I enjoyed part of the process of just been in the room, uh, and it was one of the few times that a chat was useful. I, I don't know how many Zoom calls I've been on where the chat has been, well, inane, I think would be a nice way to put it, you know. And, and this, was, this was very well done, very well facilitated. So uh, if anybody can get into one of these processes with, with Sean or look at his, his uh, upcoming workshops, I, I would definitely give him uh, an opportunity to teach me something again. I think it was very good yeah yeah it's it's a great way to start the process i think as we we both said you know it takes a little while perhaps because we're old lots to think about <laughs> I don't know. but yeah i'm looking forward to sort of taking what i did over the last couple of days and then just moving that forward over the next few weeks so that i get to a sort of finalized version uh for well for the new year mm -hmm. wonderful what's your tool of the week Stu? Uh, well, I've, I've stolen a, another uh, Justin Twyford. So, um, on a on a call that we were on, a video call, no less. Um, you showed me a use for the someday cards from Analog because I don't really use the someday cards for for their intended purpose. Um, so they tend to get sort of wasted in my set. But uh, I saw you were using it for sort of your intentions for the week, um, and I thought. What a good idea that is. Um, and so I've stolen it. It's feel free to use it. No problem at all. No, it's a really good way to do that. I, I like you. I use them a little bit for the someday cards, but most of my someday stuff gets stored, not necessarily in an analog way, at least in an analog card way. So I had these extra cards. I have it. So I have my daily card right in front of me here and right below that. So as I'm, pulling that card up every day to either mark something off or to set up a new card. I have my intentions on the top of the pack right below it. So I get to see them every day. It's a great way to keep yourself mindful. If you do have the analog system, which, uh, Stu and I are both fans of in case you haven't listened to any of the previous 35 episodes. Indeed. Absolutely. And you, what about you? What have you been using this week? All right. So. I, I got a confession to make, Stu. Mm. I'm, I'm a bit of a coffee drinker. Oh my God. I, and I'm at a very American coffee drinker, American in the North American style. 
Uh, none of these fancy little cups that you sip and disappear two minutes later. I like big coffee. And one of the challenges, of course, been out where I am is, well, there's no coffee around me. The nearest Starbucks is, well, it's about a half hour, 35 minute drive. I've been drinking Nespresso, which I absolutely loved. And Nespresso make a little capsule that does a very large cup of coffee, 414 milliliters to be exact. So a couple of those in the morning and I'm just about ready to face people. And I went to reorder them and they weren't on the ordering site. So I talked to Nespresso. They have discontinued them. Oh, the best they could do was for pretty much the same price was a 230 milliliter cup of coffee. And they said, well, you could just add hot water to it, which I tried. And uh, if you add hot water to a coffee, you get a watered down coffee. So maybe me, I threw money at the problem. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, Stu? Absolutely. I bought myself a Mocha Master KBGV Select Coffee Maker. Wow. Which is, well... It, it's crazy. It is one of the best reviewed coffee makers out there. Now, just to, just to back up, I have French press. I have uh, Chemex that I use for uh, brewing one cup at a time. The problem was I got used to the convenience of Nespresso, where you put in something, you press the button, and you come back and your coffee's done. You know, when I make a cup of coffee in a French press or in a Chemex, I'm timing things. I'm weighing things. I'm, I have the whole thing uh, so I can time and weigh how much coffee goes into it so that it breathes and it blushes. And then I can pour the rest in to make sure that the grind is perfect. And I, I tend to be a little, well, obsessive about my coffee. The Mocha Master is basically just a giant, expensive coffee pot. And I grind up some fresh coffee in the morning, put it in there, and it makes the best cup of coffee that I've had in a long time. Basically as good as, say, a $20,000 Senesso or something like that. You know, one of these really, really high-end machines. So... I'm really, really happy with that. I make myself a pot of coffee in the morning, which, surprisingly enough, gives me two of my big cups of coffee, which just about gets me started for the day. Nespresso though, lessons from new Coke. Coffee is not just a drink for a lot of people, including myself. Do you remember you were around in the eighties too? I, I, I know you probably had a lot of more interesting things, but do you remember the whole new Coke disaster? Did that ever really mm. hit England? Yeah, no, it did. I mean, they, it, it was essentially, they changed the recipe, didn't they? They made a, uh, a new Coke and then everybody went, this is horrible. Mm -hmm. And very quickly they, uh, what did they do? They released Coke classic, mm -hmm. which was the old, the old recipe. Um, and then just quietly destroyed the new one, I think, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it lasted for a few years, but, um, it, it's a very interesting business lesson because basically they're customer base retaliated against them because they did not like the change of Coke. And it wasn't about the taste of Coke at all. 
it was about the fact that you were messing with their routines mm -hmm. things that people drank lots and lots of they had you know people going out to the stores and buying cases and cases of coke the old coke because the new coke was so terrible and the idea was that they were messing with a routine and american staple in some ways and it really backfired for them and it's something that is a wonderful business case to read and to look at all of those interesting applications and results and and problems that came from this introduction of how they did it and i just look at that and go whoever is leading nespresso and not just changing the formula but discontinuing something that you know i've been drinking this for i don't know four or five years so it's been around for a long time people become ingrained in that and the association that i have with nespresso now is very much like these people with new coke i'm just not terribly impressed i've got you know hundreds of dollars worth of coffee makers basically sitting there because they changed the formula on me and you know we we talk about how we look at things going forward but i think it comes back to you've got to remember the past look at those lessons because people have been there and done it before and nespresso i think really needs to take some lessons from the new coke disaster well indeed although i, I can't really comment because as far as i'm concerned you're drinking dirty water utter nonsense but pints of coffee lord but then I am married to an Italian and I learned my coffee drinking in France. So it's going to be the little small stuff for me. It's espresso or espresso. A little mouthful. Uh, yes, it's a little mouthful. I mean, there was a time where I combined the two. So I would start the day with about eight espresso, which I do not recommend to anyone because that really does get the heart going. Um, I'm a bit more moderate now, so I will have, what will I have? I'll probably have two espresso in the morning and then maybe even a decaf. Um, and there is a little part of me actually that misses, um, the sort of longer hot drink in the morning, which would be, I suppose, a cup of tea from my child. I used to drink quite a lot of tea at home, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, the coffee comes in little short sharp blasts for me mm. uh, those are my afternoon coffees but my morning coffee you know it's cold it's snowy it's nice to sit with a big coffee and get your day started hmm. right, that's actually anyway let's get on to our regular stuff what are you writing with this week uh what am i writing with oh i am with a uh a pelican m805 um, that's the one from last week that's still going. I haven't emptied it as I thought I would. Um, and I've also busted out, um, my, my Coeco, my Coeco brass sport, the medium nib, which is the sensible pen. The, the double broad is a bit silly. Um, and it's got, uh, a Coeco summer purple cartridge in it. Ooh, I've never used their summer purple is it nice it's yeah it's nice enough it's a nice little sort of light one i i find it quite festive i don't find it very summery at all i've got to be honest mm -hmm. lovely and that is the one that doubles as your brass knuckles in case you need them right that's it or as a tent peg you know if i if i need to hold up something in a gale i can just you know bang this into the ground 
I'm sure it's got other, it's probably a sonic screwdriver. Um, if you're a Doctor Who fan, but uh, yes. I, I think they're great little things. They're wonderful machines. What about you? What are you writing with this week? Well, I was inspired by you, Stu. I, I broke down and inked up a Pelican. I know that nib. It is an extra fine, mm. but it's an M205 demonstrator. So it's the clear version of the 205. So I can see my ink lovely slopping around in that rather large ink well that they have in the middle of the pen. Mm -hmm. I'm using the Pannonia ink again. This one is the Balaton Keck, and I'm sure you're going to tell me how to say that properly. You were very, very close, mate. Balaton Keck. Keck. Okay. Very good. Uh, and this is actually Balaton Blue. I guess there's a lake in Hungary called Balaton. A very big lake, in fact. Yeah. A very big lake. And this is sort of inspired by that. And it's weird. It's a very light blue. It's, it's almost a light bluey gray. And I would normally stay away from it. But the combination of this pen, which is, it's a Pelican EF, which means it's about a medium in anything I would normally write with. But it, it is absolutely a lovely combination. Lots of ink on the paper, lots of shading with that ink. Again, very subtle, very, very nice, actually. Quite liking it. Lovely. Sounds like a great little combo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the 205, because Stu taught us all about that last week, is the silver because the 05. We talked about personal planning last week. One of the harder things that I think every business has to look at in some form is how do you bring in planning tools for an organization. And we want to talk about that as its own topic today. Smart goals, top-down goals, 360s, all those things that, you know, we've, we've all gone through. We've probably all seen them, particularly if we work for a larger organization. They're often led by HR. Mm. because they are quite often tied into compensation and bonus schemes and all of that stuff. Uh, and I wanted to talk to Stu about that because I think with our experiences, we've probably been on both sides of these, both trying to set effective ones and dealing with sometimes effective, but in my experience, um, quite often ineffective business goal settings for the upcoming year. What do you have, Stu? Anything you want to say about this before I get on the soapbox and rant? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the the complication that I've always had with, with business planning tools is that they, in, in my view, they get misused. Um, as you just alluded, somebody will say something innocuous like, right, Let's set some goals for the business. And then they will expect those, those goals to manage the motivation of the team, uh, the overall performance of the business, to determine the remuneration of every member of the team. And ultimately, I suppose, the, the return to the, to the shareholders. And this is all done in sort of two weeks at the end of the year. <laughs> they go, right, there we go. Off we go. Let's all do that next year. I mean, that's asking a lot of a little goal. 
very much. But other than that, no, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts because you give the impression, Mr. Twyford, that you have some. <laughs> Just a, a couple of them. And I think that the biggest problem that I have with this is, as you said, it, it is championed by the wrong, the wrong department, and it is not very effective in many organizations because it is a people problem and not a motivation problem. We talked about missions and visions a couple of weeks ago, and that was largely a segue into, into this topic. I think corporate goal setting can be done and it can be done well, but it needs to start from that top down vision, that goal setting, uh, cascading goals, I think is what they often call it. But in the organizations that I've been in you are often doing this bottom up. The boss is the last person that comes up with goals because, well, let's face it, they're going to look at everybody else's answers and use that to cover their own rear end. Because of course, did I mention that a lot of HR departments get involved in this process? Mm -hmm. The motivation is challenging for a lot of organizations. These goals need to time with the mission and the vision of the organization. That's why they've got to come cascading from the top down. How do I do X? Because this is a goal of the organization. What's going to move the needle as far as that goes. Um, and I think, you know, when HR gets involved, particularly when they have software and things that get passed around, we, we used to use some, uh, one of the companies I worked at lovely software where basically you could sit at your desk and type in your answers. And they would then go back to your boss and your boss would fill in his version of the answers and send it back to you. And you really didn't have any revision in there. It was, he said, she said, mm -hmm. or he said, he said, uh, which is to, to be a little bit more politically correct. They said, they said, there we go. They said, they said, they said, they said, let's, let's go with that because, well, you know, I'm, I'm old and sometimes get confused with the proper use of pronouns. But the, the idea was that it became such a challenge. And when you have a big organization, you have different managers involved in this. It becomes biased. You know, I had people that worked for me that believed that, you know, this out of a scale of one to five, they hit a seven every on every single thing all the way down. <laughs> you had other, other people that given the same performance, well, they knew they could have done better. They, they gave themselves a one or a two where realistically these people behaved and produced the same level of goals. How does the bias get filtered out of that organization? How does the bias of a manager? I've seen some managers that are well brutal with their staff and others that can do no wrong. You know, it's, it's a very challenging point of view. Yeah, I know what you say. I'll give you some real life examples. So way back when, when God was a little boy, I was a bureau de change cashier. And so I would sit on counters and I would change money. And we were given commission targets. So how much commission we could make uh, on, a, on a monthly basis. Uh, so, you know, shop A should make... I don't know, 50,000 French francs. 
in commission. Go. And that was the goal. And in many ways, it was utterly pointless because from the point of view of me, the guy on the till, I wasn't quite sure what they wanted mm-hmm. because um, without getting into all the intricacies of it, there are all sorts of margins in foreign exchange that you probably don't consider when you're thinking of commissions. So if I buy a hundred bucks at 10% commission, I'm going to make 10 bucks. Okay. Everybody's got that fine. But that hundred bucks is then going to get sold on and there's going to be some more profit. So if I were able to buy a thousand bucks, but only make $10 on it, i.e. 1%, I would also get the on sell of a thousand dollars rather than a hundred dollars. So which deal was better? That type of sort of conversation mm-hmm. needed to go on and probably did at a higher level. But for us little worker bees, it was a really loose goal. What do we go for? Commission, commission, commission. And then you would have managers saying, why didn't you get that deal? Well, I'd negotiated the commission down to 5%. He wanted to go lower and, you know, forget it. I'm all about the commission. That's what I'm targeted on. And so for the business, it was counterproductive. And that to me is an example of, of where goal setting can go wrong, where there's not enough thought given to the impact that it has on the performance of the people trying to reach the goal. So I'll give you another example, same business. When I was um, a slightly, slightly bigger young man, older young man, I was country manager. Oh, exciting. So I had an entire country to myself. This is mine. Well, that was before that even, let's, let's talk about regional. So I had the south of France, south of France is mine. And so we would have a big meeting and there'd be the guys from Paris and the guys from the south and the guys from the mountains. And we would be presenting our budgets. Now, budgets in terms of how much money we're going to spend on paper clips, fine. That's an important business uh, discipline that you need to have, you know, cost control. Straightforward, very, very obvious that you need to do that. But the key number in a budget is always the biggest number. And so that's your turnover and your revenue. Those big numbers there, those are the ones that you want to move the needle on. And because we were presenting our budgets, including turnover and revenue, the whole thing became political. <laughs> so my objective was to get the lowest possible margin target for the south of France so I could get the highest possible overachievement and therefore potentially the biggest possible bonus. Now, that's not good for the business. The business wants me to give a realistic appraisal of what's possible and what extra growth I might be able to attain through, I don't know, increased motivation, staff training, you know, any of those good things. But because of the way the process was set up, it was never going to get that. And that then got amplified where I was a country manager and we would all sit around a big conference table in London, ferociously, fiercely arguing why our target should be 20, not 25. Because the whole thing was done in such a counterproductive manner. And as you say, the big boss would sit there 
and essentially listen to the best arguer. So your oratory would get you a target that would then guarantee your bonus. And then ultimately we would go away. There would be some, you know, 9-11 would happen and there'd be no, nobody flying anywhere and the, the year's shot. And uh, it always struck me as being such a pointless exit. Well, it wasn't pointless because I quite liked flying to London, catching up with some friends, having some nice dinners. But from a point of view of the business, I thought this is nonsense because it's so arbitrary and it's so politicized um you've you've been laying the blame at hr but i think also sort of thoughtlessness i think has a lot to do with it that the whole thing was counterproductive and i i often worked at companies that paid out bonuses and in so doing they managed to cost themselves money and demotivate their teams brilliant great work yeah, I, I kind of take away the performance budgets from goal setting in a lot of ways, because, you know, that's usually done at a higher up level, a business unit leader level. And yes, I've been through those same conversations. You walk into a, that meeting, Chicago was the one for me, it wasn't London. But you, you know that you're going to play this silly game of if you come in with a realistic budget, they're going to push you for an extra 5% on top of it. Mm. If you, so you come in with a low budget expecting to negotiate and that just takes away, it, it's a game. It's, it really is a game and it's not a very good game because again, your motivation becomes part of that. And why are you, why are you playing that game? Well. Again, as you said, it becomes selfish because your bonuses, your team's performance, your headcount, you, you know, your autonomy of working in a business unit, all of those become part of the calculation that you have to make when playing the game with the numbers. That, that's, that's at a particular level of business managers. The rest of the team, when you come back and you say, here's our goal, here's what we need to do, they play the same game with you without the numbers though, you know, there's, they're going to suggest goals that are easy enough to, uh, achieve, but complicated enough to hit the check mark that they're not going to get flagged anywhere. And you know, their, their goals that realistically, well, you might have a little bit of a spurt in July if you're sitting down and doing a mid-year conversation about your goal setting. Usually the question is, well, why haven't you done anything yet? And then you have a flurry of activity in November because everybody's realized that in early December goal, your, your review is coming up for the next year. And then you've got to start the whole process of what's your goal setting going to be for the next year. I was at a company that honestly, we started the wind down the end of November, beginning of December, usually right around the time of the U S Thanksgiving is when they started saying, okay, well, you've got to start looking at your performance reviews. That was what the term was. There you go. Um, for your staff and you had to submit those to HR because well, you know, HR was the one that was doing this. The next part of that was that the corporate goals didn't actually come down till well, maybe the end of January. And so all of a sudden you end up with this weird limbo 
of a six of your year where you're, I hate to say the word rudderless, mm-hmm. but as, as an operating division and as a staff member, you're in limbo. Okay. I finished off last year. Well, what am I going to do? What are my new goals? Where am I going to go? And, and that can be very demoralizing for staff. And that, that's my challenge with, with goals. I think they can be done. I think they can be done well. I don't think they are traditionally done well though. That's, that's my challenge with these, you know, how do you bring up and look at your core competencies? How do you deal with 360 reviews? Because they are so subjective in a lot of ways. You know, if you're in a small team, there is no way that a 360 review is unfortunately not going to get any retaliation because it's so easy to figure out who has what particular beef. You know, yes, uh, HR is involved, things are randomized, but, uh, you know, we, we all know what Google's like. We know just how randomized uh, data sets are. It, it's very, very challenging to do that. However, I do believe in this, despite my reticence. And one of the things that I used to do was I used to take the only to that for my team, which was really figuring out where we needed to be, what the core competencies were, doing a, a, a proper analysis of each person. And it's time consuming as heck, but the idea is not just to throw money at somebody and say, good, good enough. You've done a little bit, keep going, but to really look at that and help people grow. And, you know, one of the best things that I think can ever come as a manager is to see somebody outgrow you. You know, one of your staff get developed to the point where they're, they're either moving on, they're taking your job. And that is a fantastic feeling. And I think that's where looking at the corporate goals is really how, how do I develop my team? And so I was in an organization that had a formal process, but my process met the criteria, but became much more one-on-one focused. It became more of a coaching tool. It became more of a feedback loop where we didn't have to meet. We had to send some documents uh, through this IT system that they put in mid-year. I had regular follow-ups to see what those goals were. And I think part of that was looking at the core competencies part of that job, not just picking the boilerplate HR Every salesperson should be outgoing and should do this and should do that. You want to look at that and say, okay, well, what are, what are our objectives? What are they in terms of meaningful metrics that we can track and rather making it a negative process, how do we make it grow? How does the employee become part of that conversation for directing their future? How do they find interesting projects to work on? Where do they want to work? What are they interested in? Things that, you know, maybe are cross department. You want to get people involved. Hey, I've got somebody that wants to learn more about the engineering side. Can I get them to sit in a little bit more with your engineering uh, meetings? Those kind of outside of the box thinking that you're not going to get focusing on, here's my sales guy. And all he's got to do is come up with these numbers, these sales numbers. No, you want to look at what does he need to make his job better, her job better, their job better. And I think you can get into the point where you can come up with things, add value into people's lives and really make them grow and by their own personal growth, 
they really are putting back into the organization. As someone at the top, Stu, mm. how did you deal with that in your own organization? Well, I, I know that was a challenge because we've talked about it before, right? Sitting around at Christmas going, oh, that's a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, we settled finally on a couple of sort of golden rules that we used to guide ourselves, which were that, um, as leaders, it was our role to describe the goal, the target, if you will. I mean, almost inevitably there's, there's quite a lot of financial measures used here. So whether that be turnover or revenue or, you know, number of transactions, wh whatever it is that, that the business measures, we felt, or eventually we settled on, there really is no point in sitting down and talking about that as a team, because everybody was essentially trying to work out what we wanted them to say <laughs> and then trying to say it. Um, and it was like, this is, this is just pointless. So, um, we would set the goals. I mean, we were the most experienced people uh, in the organization. We were the only people who had the ability to make those decisions of saying, okay, let's throw a lot of resource at problem A, or let's ignore problem B, or, you know, it, that was going to be our call. And those were the big calls that would probably have the most impact. What we would then do is sit down with the team leaders and say, okay, this is the target. This is the goal. How are we going to get there? Um, and then start that sort of coaching and mentoring process then and say, right, how are we going to get there? And by we, I mean you, because actually what I'm going to do is sit over there and have lunch. So how are you, how are you going to get your team to deliver that many new locations, that many new customers, whatever it might be. And try and do that, as you say, in a supportive way. We, we got away from the idea of individual performance um, meaning something financial. Because, again, we took a first principle and we said, look, the first uh, rule of a bonus is the, the company has to be in a position to afford it. Mm -hmm. So if the company, for whatever reason, which may or may not have anything to do with your performance, underperforms, the company is not in a position to pay you a bonus. That's life. And uh, as you might predict, that was the sort of thing that in theory, people were very nervous about. As it was, the business performed okay, so we never had to actually <laughs> turn around to everybody and say, the bonuses are off. But um, that was our sort of guiding principle. And in many ways, that was really helpful. So when we would look at individual performance and talk about what people had done, we tied that to levels of bonus that might be available if the company had performed to certain levels. Mm. Um, so there was a direct link there, but there was no sort of obligation requirement. We weren't trying to make too much of the goals. Um, and we also didn't as much as possible, make the goals for the individuals, those goals were not financials. So, um, you know, has person A been a good manager? Yes or no. 
has their team performed, yes or no. Has the team performed would be measured financially. Whether they'd been a good manager would be measured through more subjective, qualitative measures, where we could look at actually, as you say, feedback, um, our own observation, um, any documents, you know, things that have, have, have emerged, but not necessarily the numbers, because there are so many things that hit the numbers. The weather can hit the numbers. And as I say, I've worked for businesses before where, you know, I'd earned big bonuses because the World Cup had been in the right place that year. <laughs> and that had meant that more people traveled and more people traveled, walked up to the counter and changed money. It had nothing to do with anything I was doing. Um, I was there. <laughs> so um, I think it's quite important to try, as you were doing there, to, to break down what tool you're using for what purpose. And just to get away from that one-size-fits-all approach of we're going to sit down for a couple of weeks in December and decide exactly what everybody has to do and what that's going to mean for their salary, what it's going to mean for their bonus, yeah. and let's go. Nothing could change. I, I, I just think it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I think one of the worst things you can do is have a conversation in December that is a surprise to your employee. If they're not doing well, and the first time that they hear about that is at their annual performance review, I, I think you've got bigger problems. Yep, for sure, for sure. I, I don't think that that's, you know, I, that's not the time to be wielding sticks um, at review time. I think you have many opportunities to, to wield the stick during the year. When you're, you know, touching base, when, when you feel a lack of performance is visible, then you, you must, I believe as a leader, address it. That's one of your roles. You don't have to be aggressive. You don't have to be nasty. Although I was often both, um, but you, you need to sit down with the person and say, look, here, this is where we are. Why are we here? Is this where we want to be? And how are we going to get out of this? And then when it comes to review time, hopefully everybody should be on an upward trajectory because it should have been corrected before. Exactly. There's no point in, in letting someone underperform and then waiting to the end of the year to, you know, to wield an ax. It's just nonsense for them and it's nonsense for the business. Yeah, it does happen though, unfortunately. Sure. People get busy. Um, and conflict avoiders often get put into management positions, which has always mystified me because there's one thing you've got to be good at in, in management and that's conflict. Have you ever read the Peter principle? Mm, doesn't ring any bells. Oh, okay. It's, it's an old, uh, well, sort of tongue in cheek, but very accurate book that people are promoted to their level of incompetency. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a phrase I've heard before. Workers are very good and they get, keep getting promoted based on what they can do. So whatever you're good at, you get promoted into the next level above it. And at a certain point, you reach a point where your competency gives up mm -hmm. and you're outside of your comfort zone. You're outside of what's good. And then the real problem is that you no longer get promoted and you're stuck there in a position that you're no good at. And large organizations um, quite often tend to do this. They promote somebody that has been, you know, perhaps they've been a stellar engineer and they've got to the point where now they're leading the engineering team. And well, you know what? Stellar engineer doesn't necessarily make a fantastic manager. Mm, yeah. 
you you get to that point and and then you can't get rid of them because they're such a stellar engineer and you need them for this and that but you know now they're in this management position and they're never going to get promoted out of that their their upward trajectory has stopped with an organization but what do you do with them well you kind of leave them there and the whole team sort of suffers because of it that's it's a concept i've seen it happen in real life that's why i bring it up when you were talking about that yeah, no, I mean, we, we worked very hard in a couple of businesses that I was in. Um, we identified quite early that we needed to have parallel career paths. So the businesses that I've worked in have always been very, very flat. Um, and well, some would say very, very simple. You know, I haven't had huge long supply lines or anything. It's, uh, it's a services business. Yeah, usually financial of nature and. Um, there was, as you say, there's this great tendency in banking and, and all financial services to this person's really good at sales. They're really good at making money. So let's put them into a job where they do less of that making money and being good at sales and more filling in forms and satisfying HR requirements. Fantastic. And oh, look, they're, they're, they're doing okay at that. Let's make them an area manager so they do absolutely no selling. Let's completely negate that. And you end up taking your best sort of money makers and putting them into admin roles. And we very quickly identified, oh, hang on, it should be possible to remain in that lowest of the low jobs right at the coalface on the counter and earn as much as somebody who's gone up four promotions and is sitting in head office. Mm -hmm. Because it should be about us saying, see that guy there? What a salesman could not manage his way out of a paper bag, but he's a brilliant salesman. Let's reward him for selling. That person there, little bit quiet on the counter, a little bit shy with customers, but very, very thoughtful, very good at motivating. Let's look at that person as a team leader. Now, you wouldn't necessarily want that person to be earning more than the first one. And so I think that's really important as well is to look at an organization and say that the reward should not be entirely dependent upon the role in the business. It should be dependent upon the contribution to the business and sure, the performance versus an agreed set of targets and all of that stuff, but find a way to keep your best people doing their best job. <laughs> don't take your really good engineers and bury them in paperwork. Yeah, definitely a challenge that many businesses face. Not all of them do such a good job of figuring that out though, Stu, at least in my own experience. Oh, for sure. No, I do. I'd agree with that. I've worked in plenty that got it wrong. <laughs> I've got a question for you because I think we need to put this into something actionable. If you are at the, at a leadership level, I think we've got that covered, you know, be transparent, be as honest as possible. Don't use this as a, as a performance issue to, um, deal with problems that you've been putting off all year round, you know, look at it as coaching rather than just a, a, a goal setting workshop. Really it's just making sure everybody's in the right place and rowing in the right direction. So you meet your goal. But if you're an employee, how do you deal with goal setting? Do you have any words of wisdom 
for setting your own or dealing with the, the goal setting process of the, of the well, the goal setting process, basically, I think most of the times I've done it, you're going to come up with, again, it's a bit like corporate budgets. You've come up with your own list of things that you think you can do. You'll take that to your line manager. Your line manager will look at that and say, well, that's a bit of a low ball in it. And then say, come on, let's, let's, let's come back, you know, five, 10%, 15% higher in terms of your performance. We want you to do this mm. instead and try to meet that, that goal. But that first round, what do you aim for? Um, how do you set goals that are achievable? Because obviously, you know, particularly if there's a, uh, compens compensatory part of this that's tied into your remuneration or perhaps there's career advancement or anything like that. How do you deal with these things in a way that is going to help you and not hinder you? I think, uh, book standard management consultants answer here. It depends. Um, <laughs> it depends on who, on who you are. So for me, when I was faced with that sort of conversation, I can't help but try and show off. It's just, just the nature of me. So I would go to these, uh, to my manager and say, all right, so this is where we sit down. I lowball you, you come back with a push. I say, way, that's way too much. We meet somewhere in the middle. You end the meeting unhappy thinking that I've got too little a target and I end the meeting unhappy thinking that I've got too high a target. Is that how this works? Pretty much. Um, and you know, very often that will disarm the person that you're talking to. And you can just say, look, you know, you're my manager. You, you, you know who I am, what I am. You know what this business is, how this business is. Where do you think we're going? And try and turn it into a collaboration. That would be my approach. But as I used to do, I used to do a lot of training um, with people and I'd say, you know, up counter training, dealing with customers over a counter. And, and I'd say, look, I, I make people laugh. Okay. I, I use humor a lot and it works. If you're not funny, don't try humor because you'll end up getting arrested. You know, you'll say something that you think is mildly flirtatious and actually it'll be terribly offensive. Just, just don't do it. Um, you have to play to your own strengths. So if you, as a, as an employee are very analytical, then do some analysis and say, okay, these are my numbers and this is why, um, and be prepared to have that negotiation. I mean, the reality is that most of us are not making the rules of the game. We're playing by the game that we've been asked to play. So, um, if the rules are that you have to go through the, you know, low ball, high ball, let's me in the middle job, then fine. That's what you have to do. But I'm um, always as a manager, I always valued employees that were, that were themselves. So I knew talking to person a, what sort of conversation it would be because person a is the sort of person that wanted to get right into the detail and understand exactly what was driving me. And, uh, and whereas person B would quite happily say, look, just tell me, tell me the target and I'll go and we can go and have a beer. Um, you know, different strengths for different folks. So be yourself, but prepare. Mm -hmm. The, the one thing I hated as a manager was when people would come in for these things, um, either pretending to be nonchalant or just being nonchalant because they couldn't be bothered. That was the quickest way to get fired in any organization that I was involved in was to not care. If you don't care, fine, just go. 
<laughs> I just, I have no time for you. Leave. So yeah, think about what it is that you're trying to achieve. Think about the person that you're talking to, because ultimately these goals are important to you. They will have an impact upon how your performance is perceived and possibly on your remuneration. And that stuff's important, whether we like it or not. <laughs> yeah, I, I would throw out some other thoughts as well. I, I think your point is very, very well said. I don't think I can add anything to that. I would also consider your career. Take a look back and don't just think in terms of the position you're working in at the moment. You want to perhaps think laterally, what else do I want to do? What projects am I interested in that are going to get me transferable skills? What projects or tasks can I get involved with that are going to increase my visibility within a larger organization? And most of all, what are you interested in? Because there's no point playing to a system that you don't have the interest in. If you have some excitement, some interest, some passion in a particular area, even if it is not exactly what you're doing, this is a great way to set goals that broaden your personal horizon. They look good on a resume. They look good in terms of what you can contribute. And again, I'll, I'll say, look outside of, you know, your general organization. If you're a salesperson learning some engineering or some finance or some, I hate to say the word administration, but learning some of these other skills and finding some way to bring those into your performance so you can legitimately focus on those is, is also a wonderful way to do it. And I can tell you, as been sort of a boss in an organization, anybody that takes the time to learn more about another part of that organization is going to do nothing but add value, whether it's interfacing with other departments and business teams, or whether it's bringing different ideas based on other limitations. Most businesses are large enough that one person can't do it all. And certainly having that breadth of knowledge that you can bring to the table is a great way to do it. And, and this is a way to get support from your management team to, to get that, you know, and, and so that's something I would look at as well. Hold yourself accountable, but don't cripple yourself as well. If you just don't think you can do it for whatever reason, don't put yourself on that spot unless you can get the buy-in for support from the management. And again, that's going to be very much a personal decision. You know, your organization's best, but you know, see what you can get that meets with your interest, with your career goals, with your remuneration goals, where do you want to go? And you know, if it is just sitting there and been the best damn salesperson that you can be, because, Hey, that's what you enjoy doing. You're the funny guy on the front line and you really just want to do that. That's fine as well. Just be the best you can be and work your goals to be that way. Don't necessarily try to be something that you're, you're not passionate about. Good advice. All right. Any takeaways from this one, Stu? Uh, I say this in pretty much every training course or coaching session that I do. Nothing great is achieved without enthusiasm. Goals, end of year, 
targets, budgets, whatever these conversations are called, where you are. This is exciting. This is a blank page. This is a chance to think about where you can go. Sure, where the business can go, but where you can go and where you can take your little part of the business. Be enthusiastic. Dream a little. You might want to ratchet those dreams back before you present. But enthusiasm is massively important. Very much well said. I'm going to suggest that, you know, a lot of people I'm thinking in that are listening to this, seeing the demographics because, hey, you know, everything in the world is about analytics now. I'm going to guess that a lot of people probably have one or two, maybe a small team. If you can make a difference about goals for your staff, do it. Even without all the corporate management support, having a way for goal setting that can open conversations and be a form for feedback, which let's face it, we all want that as employees. We want to have motivation, alignment of goals. We want to have open and honest communication, and that can be facilitated easily through this process. So spend the time. If you have a team under you, the team stops with you. And regardless of whatever else happens, whoever else is responsible for this process, use it for your team to become the best that they can be. Anything you wanted to add to this conversation, Stu, before we move on? I, I don't think so. I'm just take, taking notes on your advice there, Justin. Very well said. Thank you. All right. Where can people find you on the internet, Stu? Uh, well, you can find me, um, if you fancy a little bit of stationery, go to nerosnotes.co.uk. You can also find me at limeconsulting.com, which is terribly serious and grown up. Or you can uh, find me on Twitter at Stu Lennon. What about you, Justin? Where can people find you? Uh, the best place to find all of the links to the stuff I do is justintwyford.com, which if you can't spell my name, which is okay, uh, you can find links to that at stationaryjason.com. You can also find me on Twitter, JJ Twyford, or you can send us an email, stationaryadjacent at gmail.com. We love to hear your thoughts on some of the things we talk about. If you do like what we do, please like and review us on your podcast catcher choice. I got to ask a favor. If you like what we do, please reach out to somebody that you know, just one person, and introduce them to the podcast as well, because your recommendations are really what helps the podcast grow. And we do appreciate that. Our next topic is going to be holiday traditions. And this was the topic that Stu introduced. So I have no idea what we're going to be talking about, but I think it'll be interesting anyway. Until then, goodbye and stay productive. Yes, sir.